You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Matthew chapter 2. And this is one of those passages, yet again, like last week, where we kind of, we were familiar with this story enough, and we, t- we tend to think of it as this bright and cheery story. But when you actually look at the text, you see it's, it's pretty dark. And this is the story of the wise men and King Herod. We tend to think of it as one of these precious, hallmark stories. But when you actually look at the text, it's not really so much about these old guys who present presents to a baby Jesus. It's actually a story about genocide. So, Merry Christmas! All right, Matthew chapter 2. Let's get into it. Verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So, uh, to spoil things for you a little bit, when you think about the nativity scene and you see the wise men there, the wise men, according to this, were not there right when Jesus was born. It says in verse 1, after Jesus had been born, the wise men saw the star. So it was more than likely that these wise men got to Jesus when he was a few months old already. Also, for what it's worth, we often think with the nativity scene that there were just three wise men, but the passage doesn't indicate that. We tend to think three wise men because one of them was carrying gold, one was carrying frankincense, one was carrying myrrh. But when you look at this, a school of traveling astrologers like this would have included at least a dozen or so men on top of their wives and their servants and their kids and their livestock. So imagine this giant squad of people and they're approaching King Herod and then they get to King Herod's doorstep and they knock on his door and they say, hey, Herod, we're here to see the king of the Jews. And Herod's thinking, well, well, I'm the king. No, 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 no. Not you, the king of the Jews. You know where we can find him? And then we get to verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. So let me give you some backstory. He was a man who was driven by power and wealth. So much so, he taxed his people about 50%. 50% went directly to him on top of taxes to Caesar, taxes to Rome, to where cumulatively, you added that together, about 75% of your earnings went towards taxes to government officials, government leaders. Herod took the biggest slice of the pie with 50%. He brought Israel's uh, economic uh, prosperity, he just brought it to ruin because of how much he taxed them. At one point, historians say when he was short on money, he found 45 of the wealthiest people in the city and had them killed and took all of their money. I would not advise that for you. This is what he did, though. He was also a man who was insecure about losing his power. When Herod came into power, the first thing he did was he slaughtered everyone from the old kingdom to prevent any competition for the throne. At one point in his life, he executed the Sanhedrin. This was Israel's, almost like their Supreme Court, the most religious leaders of Israel. He had them all killed because they were saying saying some things about him that he didn't like. 
At one point, in a fit of rage, he killed 300 court nobles in his kingdom. At one point in his life, he killed his three sons because he was paranoid that they were going to kill him and take his throne, including at one point, for fear that she would take his throne from him, he had his wife killed. So I hope for those of you who are married, that's a little encouraging to know. Your marriage could always get worse. (laughs) All in all, he was chiefly concerned with being number one and making sure he stayed on top. So what does he do? Look at verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And what we know about Herod, it's like, yeah, right, no, he's, he's not going to worship him. But his motive is, hey, wise men, hey, once you find out where Jesus is, you tell me, because I, I really want to meet this guy. He's a king, you guys are saying. I'm a king. Maybe we can hang out. We can talk about doing king stuff. But that's not really the case. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So the wise men leave, they forsake uh, where they are, and they go to follow the star. And let's skip on down to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So once again, we see an angel showing up in Joseph's life to tell Joseph what to do. Last week, we saw that Joseph didn't believe Mary at first when she was pregnant with Jesus. But then an angel shows up and says, no, she's telling you the truth. Marry, marry her, be the father of, of Jesus. And we see him once again, an angel showing up and appearing and saying, you got to get out of here. Herod is trying to kill Jesus. Verse 16, then Herod sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So in this fit of rage, he slaughters all the children under the age of two in Bethlehem just to make sure that he takes out this would-be king. Now, from what we know, in a small population like Bethlehem, it would have more than likely been about 20 to 30 kids. And regrettably, we find uh, an instance like this completely shocking, and this was all too common back then. In fact, we don't even see this account in other uh, historical accounts. We see a lot of historical events being echoed outside of the Bible in other historical accounts. We actually don't see this, which goes to show you stuff like this was all too common back then. And if it wasn't for the angel's warning, then Jesus would have been a victim of Herod's genocidal megalomania. 
So all this to say, this is not really one of those cozy bedtime stories that you tell your kids. And it's important to remember that every one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have all of this material, all of this source material to craft their narrative, to talk about what they want to talk about with King Jesus. And so when they include accounts, they're doing it with intentionality. They're doing it with a purpose. They're trying to communicate to us, yes, these things really did happen, and they're supposed to reveal something to us, the reader, whether about God or whether about people. And so the question we have to ask when we get to such a weird, shocking passage like this, we have to ask, why did Matthew include this in his narrative? Why does he pick this one? And here's the answer that I want to submit to you this morning, is that Jesus always, no matter who you are, is always going to provoke a response. Jesus always provokes a response because Jesus is the most divisive person you and I are ever going to encounter. Jesus is the most divisive person you and I are ever going to encounter. And I know this might be hard for us to believe living in the Bible Belt. We generally tend to have neutral to positive feelings about Jesus We have no real issues when people put mangers in their front yard or when people say Merry Christmas to you or we put a giant billboard on the interstate that says Merry Christmas. Like like there's no public outcry. No one's shaking their fist at that sign every time they drive by, right? And yet Jesus is the most divisive person you and I will ever meet. For example, we tend to love the Jesus of Christmas, Cute little baby Jesus, born in the major, come to bring us joy and hope and peace. But the moment we start actually thinking about the teachings of Jesus and what he calls us to do, that's when we start to get uncomfortable. When he starts to say things like, die to yourself daily. Give your money, give your possessions away. Confess your sin regularly to God and others Love your enemy or the person that you don't like very much, who you want to love the least, show love to that person. Well, that's the moment we start to get really uncomfortable. Some of us here are on the other end of the spectrum. You tend to think of Jesus as a good moral teacher, so you're down with all the things about loving your neighbor, to give your stuff away. Uh, Yes, you should open up your home to the outcast, absolutely. But when you start looking at the things that Jesus said specifically, that he was God incarnate, that he was the only avenue for salvation— Well, now, 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 Jesus, uh, he's just being a little narrow-minded here. That's what's going on. Jesus makes us uncomfortable. And from what it's worth, I kind of see this week in and week out on a regular basis. Like, it's not that dark in this room. Like, I don't know if y'all know this. I can see you when I talk, right? When it comes to certain topics, like I can see heads Uh, nodding and people are smiling and taking notes, but then I'll bring up another topic of Jesus, like what he has to say about sex or submitting to God's authority. That's when those people who were nodding, suddenly they're not nodding anymore. People don't like to take notes about that for whatever reason. And I'm that way too. There are things about Jesus that make me uncomfortable. And the truth is, this has always been the case. 
For the last 2,000 years, Jesus has made people uncomfortable. Jesus has always been divisive. He's divided families and cultures and civilizations. And it's easy to forget that in the throes of the Christmas season, where we just go to one Christmas party after another, watching one Christmas movie after another. And yet this story, this one particularly reminds us Jesus is divisive. And the dividing line has been and always will be, which kingdom are you going to live for? Are you going to live for your kingdom or are you going to live for Jesus's? Because here's the thing, it's impossible to be neutral about the Christmas story. Did you know that? It's impossible to be neutral about the Christmas story. Because if the story of Christmas is true, if the Son of God really came into this world 2,000 years ago, this means the true king of the cosmos is Jesus. And if he's the true king, guess who is not the true king? It's not us. If he's the true king, guess who's the one who gets to call the shots? It's not you. It's Jesus. If he is king, then we have lost the right to be in charge of our lives. No one's neutral about that. No one hears a statement like that, that no one is neutral if King Jesus is in charge of your life. No one hears a statement like that and goes, oh, yeah, okay, cool, I'm down. No, of course not. Because at the end of the day, there are only two responses someone can really have to Jesus. And Herod shows us an example, albeit an extreme one. His response is elimination, to get rid of Jesus, to reject Jesus. In ancient times, Herod's response was actually a very normal thing for kids, for kings, not kids, for kings to do. It was very normal in order to protect their throne their way of life. Kings didn't want anyone to compete for their throne. So when a new king would rise to power, the first thing they would do is they would wipe out the old dynasty to prevent an uprising. During their rule, whenever, if uh, at any point they felt a threat to their way of life, any threat to how they operate, any threat to their wealth, their comfort, their approval, their power, their control, their happiness, their way of life, they would attack. And we actually see this all throughout Herod's life. In essence, if there was ever ultimately a threat to his happiness or the life he had grown accustomed to, the logical response was, take it out, remove it, eliminate it at all costs. For Herod, Jesus was a threat to his kingdom, so his only option was elimination. And here's the thing, Jesus is a threat to our kingdom too. In every human heart, there is a little king that wants to rule, that is threatened by anything that may compromise our desire to be omnipotent over our lives, our desire to be sovereign over every aspect of our lives. This is why when someone challenges us on something, if someone challenges you on anything, perhaps how we spend our time, our knee-jerk reaction is not to say, oh, wow, Thank you so much for calling me out on that. I had no idea. You've opened my eyes. I'm a better person now. Thank you so much for this piece of truth that you have given me. May God bless your soul. That is not our reaction. 99.9% of the time when someone says to you something like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be spending so much time watching TV, and maybe you should talk to your wife. 
we respond with, well, yeah, maybe you shouldn't spend so much time thinking about how much I spend my time. (laughs) Or maybe you're not as confrontational as me and it comes out more like, well, I've had a hard day. Hey, things have been really crazy for me. I just need some me time or whatever. Or it may not be overt like that, but deep down in your soul, your pride kind of gets hurt a little bit and you think to yourself, who are you to infringe on my domain? Or I'm, I'm certainly not going to open up to you again about how I spend my time. And when you think about it, Jesus is a threat to how we spend our time, how we spend our money. He's a threat to our comfort, a threat to our power, a threat to our control, our threat to our in-the-moment happiness. He's a threat to our pleasure and the life we've grown accustomed to. And if our highest aim in life is to make our lives better, The highest aim of life is just to improve ourselves just one step at a time. Jesus is absolutely a threat to that. And while all of us have significantly less power than Herod did, we'll likely not use it to do such an evil thing. But what we will do is we will seek to eliminate Jesus from our lives just the same. We'll seek to eliminate Jesus in our lives just the same. Here's how I think this shows up with us is for many of us, we are okay with Jesus, but only up into a point. Only up to a certain point. But the moment you get me uncomfortable, the moment you start to make me squirm, well, hey, then I'm out. Then I get really quiet in life group, or I don't want to be in that life group, and I find a different one that makes me more comfortable or I leave a church and find another one that makes me more comfortable, or I just walk away from Jesus altogether. So I'm great with Jesus. I want to be identified with Jesus up until a point. But when it comes to I have to choose and trust and follow Jesus when it comes to my singleness and my sexuality, what happens if I never get married? What happens if my desires don't get met? Well, sorry, Jesus, I was with you for a time, but I'm over it now. That's just not going to do. I'm great with Jesus, but only up until the point where he calls me to deny myself, to love people who I don't really like or enjoy, and you call me to love those people? Sorry, Jesus, I'm out. Ever heard of boundaries? Maybe I should buy that book for you, Jesus. You should read that. Jesus, I'm cool with you, but only up until a point, but where you call me to prioritize the things of our church family, to prioritize life group relationships, and to not take my kids to every soccer game, to every dance recital. Sorry, Jesus, I'm out. My kids have to come first. So we're great with Jesus, but only up until a point. And when he says something to us about how we spend our time, how we spend our money, who we should or shouldn't sleep with, who we should go be reconciled with, what we need to repent of, what our family should do and prioritize. Well, then Jesus, I'm, I'm all about it, but only up until a point. And at a certain point, I'm just going to walk away. And I'll, I'll put something on the gram that looks really positive and spiritual and maybe even cite a verse. And I might even still read my Bible every now and again and show up to gatherings and put on a happy face. But hey, make no mistake, I am about what's comfortable for me. I am about living my kingdom first and foremost. And this is one of the responses we can have when it comes to Jesus. But there's another. Let's look back at verse 9 of Matthew chapter 2. 
This is referring to the wise men. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where their child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Exceedingly with great joy. I love that. So in the Greek that this was originally written in, the Greek is super bumpy. It's really hard to read. It literally says they rejoiced with mega great joy. This idea of like, they are just so excited. They are thrilled beyond degree. Imagine this caravan of wise men and they're traveling and they've heard from Herod and now they're traveling to Bethlehem. They're following this star and they're walking through the desert under the blistering sun and even those cold nights and they're just walking and finally they see it. They see the star over King Jesus's house and they just respond. They're just overwhelmed with excitement. They rejoice with this message great joy. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is the type of response you give to a king. This is the type of response you give to God. These wise men, these were men with power and prestige. They had kingdoms of their own. And what do they do when they see Jesus, baby Jesus, as a helpless child? What is their response? They fall to their knees in worship. They lay down these treasures at his feet, gold, frankincense, myrrh. What's really interesting, these objects These were costly things. These weren't just souvenirs you get from like an airport gift shop. These were objects that you would have found in the Jewish temple. This was dating all the way back to the Exodus. That in the tabernacle where God's presence was residing, you would find objects like this within the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, the only people that were allowed in in order to be in front of the presence of God were the Levites. These were people who were ethnically from a certain tribe of Israel and they had to ceremoniously wash themselves and cleanse themselves and go through all these rituals and rites before they could step into the presence of God. And so then you have these wise men, men from pagan backgrounds in foreign countries, not ethnically Jewish, and they're dirty and they're caked in in mud and they are sweaty and they're having a hard time catching their breath and they are standing before the presence of God, laying down their treasures that we see all the way back in the tabernacle. It's a picture that King Jesus is drawing the whole world to himself. Not just the Jewish people, not just the religious folks, but the whole world from the most unlikely backgrounds. He's making a people for his own who are exchanging their kingdom for his. And just consider for a moment just how bizarre this scene would have played out. You're Mary and Joseph, and you're hanging out with Jesus, who is only like three months old, and you have a hundred people just bustling through your door, and they just start worshiping your baby. Like, we have three kids. We've had visitors in the hospital, but none of them have ever just, like, fallen down on their face just worshiping, right? This would have been a really bizarre account. And the reason why the wise men do this is very simple. They found something better. They found something better. Something better than in-the-moment happiness. 
something better than improving your life one day at a time. They found something, or rather someone, who provides this mega great joy. And the chief lie we believe, the lie Herod believed, the lie that moves us closer to choose our kingdom over Jesus's is that if Jesus is king, if he really is king, then he's gonna be a threat to our joy. And the point at which we stop being okay with Jesus is the point in which we believe our joy is in jeopardy. It's not just that we fear that his kingship uh, and what it will mean for our everyday lives, but that trusting and following him is gonna be a threat to our happiness, but nothing could be further from the truth. Joy is precisely what Jesus came to give us. Joy is the business of heaven. John 15, 11, Jesus speaking this, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full This idea full, overflowing to the brim with joy. This is what he is offering us. This is exactly what Jesus came to do, to give you this mega great joy, a joy that is not grounded in your circumstances, a joy that is not grounded in your feelings, but in the unshakable promises of Jesus for you. A joy that says no matter what, no matter what happens, I know my eternity is secure and now I can go live that out. I know that my sins are as far as from the east is from the west. Therefore, I can live a life of joy. And this does not mean that life is going to be perfect. This does not mean that everything is going to go your way, as though you will never have hardships ever again. Rather, even when things are dark, even when it feels like life is just ripping you apart. You've got something to stand on, and that's the presence and promise of God for you in your life. That's joy. That even when you're beat up, and even when you're hurting, and even when nothing is going the way you want it to go, you have a God who cares for you, a God who has your eternity secure forever. That's joy. But joy is going to be found in his kingdom, in seeking his kingdom and not our own. If you want to know how I know we don't have joy, I just did some brief research over this last week. I could give you tons of examples, but I could give you one. Did you know the average American spends about a little over eight hours a day on media, whether that's TV phones, entertainment. But what that shows us is we spend a third of our lives, a third of our lives just consumed with entertainment. We're doping ourselves away because we want joy. We're numbing ourselves and we're just trying to find anything that can give us any relief. But if you continue down the kingdom of self, it leads you to the exact place that Herod's kingdom led to. A life marked by paranoia and anxiety, and defensiveness, and hostility, and self-righteousness, and distraction, and elimination of anything challenging. But to be a person marked by joy is only going to happen when you let Jesus call the shots in your life, especially when, even when, he makes you uncomfortable. In those moments when Jesus makes you uncomfortable, you have a decision right then and there. Whose kingdom are you going to pursue? Are you going to pursue your kingdom and the path it leads to? Or are you going to pursue Jesus and the path that that leads to? 
Are you going to choose your happiness in the moment? Are you going to choose your joy that is eternally secure? Are you going to reject him or are you going to worship him? When you choose Jesus, and I don't mean choosing Jesus by just saying yes to the intellectual facts and, you know, just going through the religious motions. I mean, when you let Jesus call the shots more and more in your life with every category of your being, you start to experience the type of life deep down that you really long for. The type of life you were designed for, a life marked not by you, but by Jesus. Not your desires, but Jesus's desires. Not your happiness, but your joy. That when you lose yourself and you pick up your cross daily, only then you will find your life in him. So that even when Jesus makes you uncomfortable, you can trust him. You can trust him because he is a good king. So that even if you don't want to obey because happiness would tell you otherwise, you can lean on him because he is good. And if you want it, you want this type of joy that Jesus is offering, it is there for the taking. All you have to do in the language of the New Testament is to simply believe and repent, to believe that Jesus loves you, that he is God incarnate, that he lived the perfect life you never could, he died the death you deserve, he rose again for your sin, and to repent, to change your mind, to change your thinking, to change your ways, to exchange your kingdom for his, and to trust to trust that he knows what is best for you. And the invitation for us this morning is this invitation to this mega great joy that Jesus is offering, to change how you think joy is found, to change your ways of pursuing it in the hands of your own kingdom, to stop, to stop attempting to eliminate Jesus' rule in your life and to trust him with it. Trust him that his ways are better than your ways, and to trust that he and he alone heals and forgives and delivers you and gives you life and joy to the fullest for those who seek after him and who worship him no matter what. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you are after our joy. More than our happiness, more than our comfort. You are after our joy. So Spirit, we just ask that as we go about this week, in those moments where we get really uncomfortable because we don't want to obey the things you tell us to do, in those moments, will you just bring this to mind? Help us to choose your kingdom over ours. Help us to be a people who are marked by joy that no matter what we are going through, that we have the resolve to commit ourselves to know that you know better than we do. So God, we ask, with our joy being on the line, will you make us uncomfortable? Will you make us uncomfortable so that we can turn all the more to your kingdom and not ours? Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.